The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor and privilege to welcome Dr. Margaret Carell. She is an assistant professor at the University of Iowa in the Department of Geographical and Sustainable Sciences. Her research centers on exploring geographic patterns of health and disease using GIS and spatial statistical techniques. The focus of her research is to understand how complex interactions between people and environments result both in disease outcomes and the progressive evolution of human pathogens. I was especially interested in some of the courses that Dr. Carell was teaching, for example, the geography of health, environment and health, and the hungry planet, global geographies of food, which explores how food environments are created and have changed through time. And most recently, I was interested in a paper, or a project, I should say, that is based in Iowa that examines how residential proximity to swine capos, or confined animal feeding operations, is related to MRSA infections. And MRSA, of course, stands for Methicillin-Resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So, Dr. Carell, welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I wonder if you could tell me just a little bit about how you became interested in this connection between geographic patterns of health and using these GIS and spatial statistical techniques to map geography with health and disease. I sort of landed on it by accident, the way I think a lot of people land on what they're interested in. I was really, starting in junior high, I was really taken with the idea, this is going to sound weird, of the 1918 influenza epidemic. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of stuff coming out in the late 90s about discovering the strain of flu that had caused the epidemic, and there was a PBS special, and they showed policemen in Seattle wearing masks. And here was an epidemic that I had, I had never heard about before yeah. um, in any of my, my textbooks. And so that sort of got me interested in the idea of infectious disease and epidemics looking at the genetics of infectious disease and then also trying to understand where people get sick, the way disease moves over a landscape, things like that. Medical geography, I'm a medical geographer, is a discipline that I didn't even know about until I was in my late 20s. They don't really teach geography so much in school anymore, at least the geography, the way I practice it. I sort of just found it by chance, and here, all of a sudden, you know, was something that related to my interest in infectious diseases, my love of maps, my love of understanding the way things are different around the world. Um, It just really combined all of these interests that I had been developing since I was a child. And I noticed you got your Ph.D. at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, which is really nationally known for its program in public health. Is that where you focused on this idea of medical geography? There are very few geography 
PhD programs left in the United States. They closed a lot of geography programs starting in the 60s and on through the 70s. So actually, in terms of the places where I could study medical geography or the geography of infectious diseases, there were relatively few geographers out there that were working on these issues. And one of them, Melinda Mead, just happened to be a professor at the University of North Carolina. Um, and then my advisor subsequently joined the faculty there. But I think part of the reason that there was medical geography in the geography department at North Carolina was because there is this amazing school of public health and a lot of people that focus on infectious disease research. Yeah. Well, I noticed, you know, in my own profession of nutritional sciences, there's a lot of discussion going on right now with climate change, for example, and focusing on how diseases travel more so because of the climate changes that we're seeing. So, for example, I remember being at a conference where I learned that diseases that had never been seen or, or bugs uh, and infections related to those bugs that had never been seen in northern climates were showing up. And so I feel like you are really at the cutting edge of a very important body of research. Well, I do think the disease landscape is going to shift in the next couple of decades, both due to climate change, you know, population growth and movement, increased trade of goods, and, yeah, things are going to shift a little bit in the future. Yeah. Now, you've done a lot of research, uh, not only on MRSA, which, of course, is, is an issue that I'm interested in, but you've also looked at the study of H5N1 influenza in Vietnam, H1N1 in China, malarial drug resistance in the Congo, and HIV drug resistance in North Carolina. Have you traveled to all of those places globally? I have traveled to to Vietnam and China and North Carolina, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I have not been to the Congo. No, I've never been there. But I've been fortunate enough in my research to be able to go and visit sites in Bangladesh and Vietnam and China and places like that. I think the thing that bubbles to the top to me for many of the areas that you've researched is this idea of resistance. And it's really frightening. I have interviewed in the past a woman by the name of Marin McKenna who... Oh, yeah. Yes, right? That She's really dedicated her life's work to studying infectious diseases and how they develop resistance. So I think that we as a society and increasingly a global society, your research in this area is very important. So why don't we jump in and talk a little bit about how you got started with the project in Iowa examining how residential proximity to swine CAFOs is related to MRSA infections. Okay. Well, I had never really worked on MRSA or MRSA before I moved to the University of Iowa. But once I got here, there were people in the Department of Epidemiology and the Department of Medicine and at the VA, the Veterans Hospital, that were really doing a lot of MRSA research. It's a pretty big issue here in Iowa and in the United States generally. And as an employee of the state university, I wanted to start doing some research that was local and was really focused on an issue that the people of the state were experiencing. So the way we got started on this MRSA and residential proximity to swine CAFOs was 
The Veterans Administration uh, a couple of years ago implemented a number of measures that were designed to reduce staff RAS infections in VA hospitals or medical centers. And one of these methods that they implemented was anybody being admitted to a veteran's hospital anywhere in the United States gets a nose swab taken and a quick culture done to see if they have staph aureus and more specifically drug-resistant staph aureus in their nose. So if you have a staph aureus colonization, it does not in most cases mean that you have an active infection with staph aureus. The bacteria can just sort of hang out in our nose, it can hang out on our skin and not cause an active infection. But what the VA was concerned about is that you are admitting patients that are colonized with drug-resistant staph aureus. And if the staff of the VA doesn't know that they're colonized, then maybe they're not going to take adequate precautions to make sure that that bacteria doesn't get transferred to a surface or to another patient. And that other patient might be colonized with staph aureus, but then it goes on to cause an infection in that patient. So the VA, to prevent onward transmission of drug-resistant staph aureus within the healthcare setting, decided to go ahead and swab everybody that was being admitted to the, to the VA. So what that means is that we have this data set nationwide, but also in Iowa, of every veteran that is admitted to a VA medical center. We know their address, and we know if they were admitted colonized with staph aureus. Mm. Um, so this is a pretty amazing data set, especially from the perspective of a geographer. You know, there is abundant data out there on infectious disease, but very little of it is spatially linked in yeah. any way. So getting patient addresses means that we can understand their local environments, and we can start to understand the landscape in which they're living. Usually you get data and it's aggregated up to the county or the state level, and at that point can't do that much with it from a geographic perspective. So we have this spatially referenced MRSA colonization data, and at the same time, there are some studies coming out of the Netherlands and out of Pennsylvania that are indicating that people who live in areas where there are a lot of livestock farms, specifically really industrialized livestock production, um, that people that are living in these areas or that are living near fields where manure is being sprayed, even if those people have no direct livestock contact, they're at increased risk of MRSA colonization or infection. So we're looking at this data set that we've got for Iowa and going, well, we know where all of these veterans live, and we know if when they're admitted to the, the VA medical center, if they are colonized with MRSA or not. Maybe we can do our own study to see if, in Iowa, residential proximity to swine farms increases your risk of MRSA colonization. So that's sort of the way this study got going, is we had seen these other studies coming out of the Netherlands and then later Pennsylvania, and we were wondering if we would see the same thing in Iowa. So how many patients did you have total to look at? And tell me what you found. Well, our final patient population was only about 1,200. 
been the swabbing of all patients at time of admission to the VA Medical Center only began about the end of 2009. So we had a little bit of data from 2009. We had all data from 2010 and then also from 2011. And so for those, you know, a little bit over two years worth of admissions, we had about 3,000 altogether. 3,000 veterans that were admitted to the Iowa City VA Medical Center from late 2009 through December of 2011. But what we decided to do is to exclude all veterans that were residents of urban areas in the state. And urban areas in Iowa have a slightly different meaning than urban areas elsewhere since we are a largely rural state. Um, But the census designates places as urban or rural. So we excluded all urban veterans from our data set, and we were left with about um, 1,200, I think, veterans um, from 2010 and 2011. And then for each of those veterans, we took their address and geocoded it, so we located it in space. And then the Iowa Department of Natural Resources has the spatial locations of all swine, turkey, cattle, dairy cattle, all of these farms, so we could look and see where veterans were living and if there were swine farms around them. And? And, okay. <laughs> and? Um, yeah. So, so we were only looking at swine farms. We decided not to look at cattle or sheep or turkeys or chickens or anything like that, um, just because you do see a stronger link between staph aureus and pigs. Swine can be colonized with staph aureus. It rarely causes an active infection in them. The nose of a pig, I guess, is similar enough to the nose of a person that when we're talking about risk for staph aureus in industrial farming, we're really talking about swine production most of the time. So we were able to look at veterans and look at the number of pigs that were living within a mile of their address, of their residential location. And the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, in addition to giving you the location of a farm, will also indicate the number of animals that are being raised on that farm. So we sort of just drew a circle around each veteran's residence and added up the number of animals that were living within a mile of their residence. And then we looked at the relationship between the number of swine within one mile and your risk or odds of being MRSA colonized when you were admitted to the hospital. And we didn't really see any difference if it was just zero or one. You had no pigs living within a mile or you had any pigs. There was no significant relationship there. But if we looked at veterans that were close to large numbers of swine, so greater than a 1,000 animal units, um, and an animal unit is just a way that Iowa DNR has of comparing the amount of manure that a cow produces to the amount of manure that a pig produces to the amount of manure that a chicken produces. So if you had greater than a 1,000 swine animal units, in this case, that would be about 2,500 pigs living within a mile of you or more, your odds of being MRSA colonized at admission nearly tripled and significantly so. So this relationship between residential proximity to really large numbers of swine in CAFOs 
and your MRSA colonization. This relationship, this three-time increase in your odds of being MRSA colonized is unlikely to be due to random chance. It does look like there is an actual relationship there that it does increase your risk of MRSA colonization. Okay, let me take one moment, Dr. Carell, and just remind our listeners that we are speaking with Dr. Margaret Carell. She is an assistant professor at the University of Iowa in the Department of Geographical and Sustainable Sciences, and she has done some terrific research. But the study that we're talking about at the moment is based on a new project in Iowa which examines how residential proximity to swine CAFOs is related to MRSA infections with swine CAFO meaning confined or concentrated animal feeding operations and MRSA standing for methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So, Dr. Carell, it sounds like if you live close to a large hog confinement facility, you're going to be at greater risk for being a carrier for MRSA. Yes. I was really intrigued, though, by something you said, which was when the manure from these hogs is sprayed on agricultural land, say, you know, I know farmers who are growing, say, corn or soybeans, they're looking to enhance, the, you know, it's called nutrients, right? It's fertilizer from these animals. And then, of course, the manure contains also this resistant bacteria, So I'm wondering now, when it rains, you're going to get a lot of times soil erosion, you're going to get runoff, this water mixed with manure ends up in rivers and streams. Have you looked at all at the transfer of these resistant bacteria throughout the environment and related illness? I have not personally looked at that. I know there are researchers, for instance, in North Carolina that are taking water samples from around swine confinements um, and, you know, looking at these water samples to see if there's drug-resistant staph aureus present in the water. I know there are people in Europe that are doing testing sort of upwind and downwind of farms to see how far and at what density staph aureus can be wind-borne. Linking these to actual infections, though, or even colonization becomes quite difficult. Since you do have so many people who might come into contact with Staph aureus and become colonized in their nose or on their skin, but that in many cases is only a sort of a temporary colonization, or you can have people that are colonized for much longer than that, but it never goes on to develop an active infection. So... I think there's a lot of research being done, but linking this sort of environmental exposure to active infection is quite difficult. That is something that the paper I mentioned coming out of Pennsylvania, that's something that they were working on. And I think they were looking at um, infection in hospitals, people being infected with staph aureus in a healthcare environment, and then linking that to where they lived and their exposure to manure spraying on surrounding fields. That came out, I think, in the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine at the end of last year. And it got a lot of attention. It was in the USA Today just because people are concerned about, and like our study says, you might not necessarily be coming into contact with animals, but it can exist in the environment and you might be interacting with it. Mm -hmm. I should add, though, however, that in the U.S., at least not so much in Europe, but in the U.S., there is drug-resistant staph aureus that is 
on the ATM, on right. the mailbox, at the gym. So in European studies, they have much less staff arias in the population than we've got in the United States. I mean, in our study, rural veterans had a 7% colonization rate, and urban veterans actually had a 9% colonization rate. Mm-hmm. So there are multiple places in the community or in a healthcare setting that somebody can acquire or become colonized with a staph aureus bacteria, drug-resistant or not. I was just going to add that I know that there is a trend for hospitals through an organization called Healthcare Without Harm where there's a movement or a trend towards purchasing meat from animals that have not been treated with antibiotics as a way to help stop some of this antibiotic-resistant infection that actually comes into the kitchen via meat that comes from an industrial facility. And I know that Consumer Reports also has had some interesting data recently looking at just the meat that we buy in the supermarket and how often that is contaminated with resistant bacteria. Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm actually um, participating in a study that's being funded by the USDA looking at whether raw meat is a risk factor for staph aureus. We haven't written any papers yet. We're still looking at the data. But it it is possible that when you go to the grocery store, the pork that you're buying does have staph aureus or drug-resistant staph aureus on that. But if you cook your meat thoroughly and you wash your hands and you wash your cutting boards, then your likelihood of colonization or infection is quite low. Right. Uh, But we are looking to see if that is a risk factor for staph aureus colonization and infection. I think the larger concern or finding from our study is that, and I should say that for these veterans, we don't know anything about them other than their address, their age, and their gender. So we don't know if they are actually working in the barns themselves. So maybe the reason they're living so close to so many pigs is because they're swine farmers themselves. Or for our older veterans, maybe it's that they live with their younger children and their children are the ones that are running the swine farms. And so that it's maybe they do have direct contact with animals and that's why their MRSA colonization goes up. So that is a limitation of our study is that we're not actually sure by what route or what the causal mechanism is that's operating that increases your odds of MRSA colonization by three factor. Right. Um, But our concern is that the VA is swabbing people at time of admission to see if they are MRSA colonized and then puts them on precautions to prevent that MRSA from making its way into other patients. And I think the University of Iowa, their hospitals and clinics are starting to do the same thing with admissions. But our larger finding, I think, is that you have rural, agriculturally engaged populations, some of whom have livestock contacts, some of whom don't. And if they're coming into a healthcare setting where their MRSA colonization status isn't assessed when they're admitted, then this is potentially a route for staff aureus to make its way into a healthcare setting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think your study is so critically important, which is why I wanted to have you on for a number of reasons. I mean, one, to set perhaps a precedent for testing all individuals who come into hospitals, especially those living in rural areas who seem to be at higher risk, but also just understanding how we're all sharing this planet together and how these different systems are connected. I think that's a 
an important revelation for many of us to see how we do trade organisms or bacteria with animals and our environment. And I was really shocked to read just the numbers in your paper. There are typically 19 million pigs being raised in Iowa. Housed oh, in- yeah, we're real efficient up here in Iowa raising pigs. Yes. <laughs> We've got it down to a science. Yes, you do. And housed in 7,000 concentrated animal feeding operations. And, of course, we would assume that most of those animals are routinely given antibiotics. Would you say that's true? I don't think there's any way you couldn't give them antibiotics and keep them alive. I mean, you're giving antibiotics to animals for two reasons, right? One is to keep them from getting sick. And the other is because if you give an animal antibiotics, they will gain weight faster. Right. Um, so, and that's the the purpose, right? Is to generate as much meat as possible in as short an amount of time. Yeah. Um, it comes at a cost, though. It seems. Well, it, it does come at a cost, but it's a cost that happens further down the road, right? right? And. What people want immediately, in most cases, is an abundant supply of inexpensive meat. Mm -hmm. Um, And antibiotic resistance is something that's happening gradually, but, you know, you can put it off, or if you're not, you know, having some medical procedure, you don't necessarily think about it. Or maybe you feel like you don't have the money to spend on organically raised meat. You know, there are all sorts of reasons at play here. But it's sort of this short versus long-term thinking, and I think most people are, their concerns in the immediate are more pressing than long-term, larger population-level issues. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. It's sort of the way our society thinks, and now we have to reassess some of the ways we've been doing things. So I think your research is critically important. Well, I knew that our time would fly. We just have a a minute left, and I want to give you an opportunity to say anything you'd like about some of your wonderful courses that you teach, like Hungry Planet, Global Geographies of Food. Leave our listeners with some little tidbits of exciting information that you've discovered. I think the biggest thing that I've discovered is that 19 and 20 and 21-year-olds really, they want to know what's going on, and they are really trying to change what they see as being problematic about the way we live. And they, you know, they graduate with all sorts of passion and determination that they're going to change the way things are. And I'm not that old, but I've already become a little jaded, (laughs) I think, about the impact that an individual can have. But I am, every year I am refreshed by their, their energy and their devotion and their willingness to get in there and make any difference that they can. So I've had students that, after they graduate, go to Malawi to work with permaculture and increasing agricultural output in sustainable ways. I have students that go and do AmeriCorps and work with food banks in the American Southeast. I have two students that are on their second year of starting an organic farm. They have their first CSA in operation this summer, and they are doing a fantastic job so just that there's hope, I guess, I, is the biggest thing. I like, that I think there is this increasing realization that 
you have to think bigger picture and longer term. I think you've left us on a wonderful note of hope and a change in the way we think. So I want to thank you so much, Dr. Carell, for being my guest. Oh, sure. It was my pleasure. We have been speaking with Dr. Margaret Carell, Assistant Professor at the University of Iowa in the Department of Geographical and Sustainable Sciences. And I am going to provide a link to her website so you can learn more about her terrific research and the courses that she teaches. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us, remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And again, Dr. Carell, thank you so much for carving out time for me. Oh, definitely. My pleasure.